I have a very, a very uh, challenging lesson ahead of me this morning, and I know this topic um, is hard for us to deal with, and I, I think it's especially, um, I've heard, I've had some feedback, and uh, some of the ladies have been studying this, and uh, I want you to just uh, put on your seatbelts this morning and, and, and deal with it, and, and be honest with yourself about it. I know that sometimes things in God's Word come across, and maybe it makes you feel a little bit inadequate, or you don't feel good enough, or, or, um, but this is a topic that we cannot avoid. We are, we are busy with this, this series about the top 10 things that Jesus spoke about. Can anybody remember what the first one was? The thing that Jesus spoke about the most. He spoke about His Father, and the challenge was this. If you can live your life mentioning the Word of God in conversation, that's great, because you're pulling in faith to the earth, because people will then start thinking about God when you mention Him, right? That's one of the things. Who remembers anything else? So he spoke about God. Secondly, he spoke about heaven, the place where his Father lives. And so Jesus mentioned that 273 times, or 76, I can't remember. And then thirdly, the third thing Jesus spoke about the most was hell, the place where God is not. And so today we're going to talk about the fourth thing, and to sort of help us go into this, I just want us to, to, to reflect on this. Why did Jesus talk about His Father, where His Father lives, and where His Father doesn't live? Because He came to bring a message. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. He came to the earth to introduce the Father to us. He wanted us to understand, hey, there is a God. He is alive. You want to know what He looks like? Look at me. You want to have a relationship with Him? It's possible. You want to live with Him forever? Let me tell you about heaven. You can actually go live with Him. So Jesus came to invite human beings into a relationship with the Father so that they can be forever with the Father where He is, which is a million times better than what we have here. Right? So Jesus came to invite us to eternal life, but also, why did He talk about hell? Because He came to warn us that there will be consequences for our decisions, that there will be an ultimate accountability, that there will be a judgment. And we spoke briefly about that last week, and I think in that lesson as well. There has to be a judgment where every person will be held accountable for what they have done. And Jesus came to tell us that. And so He came to warn us, hey guys, you don't want to go there, you want to go here, you want to be with God. Now if we summarize that whole message, if we summarize all that Jesus said, in one word, it's this. It's evangelism. All that Jesus came to do, the very reason why Jesus came to the earth was to save people's souls. Look at this. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why He came. He came to save human beings from destruction, to invite them into eternal life. And I'll be honest with you, what I really struggle with, what I really struggle with is the type of Christianity that's predominant today, where people don't understand this, where people think, well, okay, Jesus came to save the world, but I don't really worry about the world being saved or not. It's like saying that your role model is the greatest hunter on earth, and you want to be like him, but you never want to hunt. It doesn't make sense. There's a contradiction. And what many Christians don't understand is just this concept. Jesus came to save the human race, and His predominant desire for us is to participate in this endeavor. Look at John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to do what? To be the Savior of the world. 
The very reason why Jesus came was to save the human race. My question to you this morning is, does that resonate in your mind? When you say, okay, I'm a Christian, do you understand that your primary mission is to help Jesus save the world? Or is the primary idea that you have of being a Christian just going to church on Sunday, reading the Bible for yourself, and praying now and then? Do we understand that this is the mission? And this is the reason why, because there's a big misunderstanding in Christianity, and I, and I, I can see people are not understanding this, and, and it's because for, for hundreds of years, this has not really been taught. Although we talk about it, it there's no real... I don't know how to say it. I'm still trying to figure it out. Why it is so foreign to us that this should be our primary mission as a, as, as a Christian. Anyways, I read a, just an illustration that sort of made me think, you know. The guy says, you know, if you, if you walk past your neighbor's house and you look inside the, the front window and you see that they are just having a wonderful time watching TV, an incredible movie, or they're watching Oprah Winfrey or whatever the case may be. And you walk past the house and you look at this wonderful family and you, you move on a little bit further and you see, oh, but their the house is on fire at the back. What, what would you do? Would you, would, you, would you run to the front door, knock on the door and say, hey, your house is on fire? Or would you pause for a moment and think, uh, hey, I, I don't want to disturb their movie. You know, it looks like they're having such a wonderful time. They're going to be upset with me if I disturb them. I can see they're really engaged with this movie. I don't want to disturb them. You know, maybe they'll, later they'll, they'll find out. Well, maybe when you go knock on the door, they won't be very happy that you've disrupted their movie, but you think they'll be happy that you told them about the fire in their, in their, in their, in their house? Of course you would, right? And very similarly, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Jesus came at exactly the right time, the text says, and he came to warn the human race that this life that we live, this world we live in, this universe we live in will be burnt up. It will be. That's why continually Jesus uses words like, similar to in the days of, of Noah, people eating and drinking and getting married and being given in marriage, and then the flood came and they died. And he says, so it will be at the end of time that this place where we live will be destroyed. When Jesus came to preach, he came to tell us, listen, this will end. Now, I'm not saying this uh, in, in a negative sense for us to feel like, oh my goodness, okay, so um, there's, no, there's no reason to enjoy this world. That's not at all what I'm getting at. I'm just getting at that this is real. The death is definite. I don't know if you saw in the uh, bulletin, but my grandmother died on um, Sunday and it was just a reminder again that death is real, and it's coming for each and every one of us. And so there is an end. And if we don't tell people about that, we're exactly the same as walking past somebody's house, seeing their houses on fire, and not telling them about it, because we don't want to disturb their, their movie. Same thing. So that brings us then, introduction. Number four, the thing that Jesus spoke forth mostly about was evangelism which is an invitation to heaven and a warning of hell. And I'm going to help us quickly this morning, hopefully. There's a few things I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you some stories. I'm going to bring out a plant just now. And we're going to talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger quickly. And I want to give you some theory just quickly. Because I think some of us are sitting here this morning and we're like, okay, so Michiel, when you say evangelism, what do you mean by that? You mean like, okay, I've got to go out into the streets. Is that what Jesus preached? Well, Jesus 
when he speaks about evangelism, he gives us various ways of looking at it or, or various ways of doing it. And I want to share with you just four ways quickly. The first one that I think we know the most is this, making disciples, right? In, in Matthew chapter uh, 28, verse 18 to 20, then Jesus came to his disciples, right, and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I've spoken about this many times before. We all know this scripture, but somehow in most Christians that I meet everywhere, most Christians I meet don't feel that they must do this. They feel it's not for them. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a command. It's the Great Commission. It's not the great suggestion. Now you might ask, well, what is a disciple? A disciple is a student or a follower of Christ, a learner. The question is, how are disciples made? Well, if you go look at the original Greek translation, he's saying, he's actually saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and teach all the nations. Teach all the nations about what, do you think? You can tell me. Jesus Jesus came to tell the world about his father. And then he says, okay, I'm dying. I'm going back. I want you to tell the world about me. It's very simple, right? That's what it means to go make disciples. Tell people about Jesus. Teach others what you know about Jesus. Why? Because he's the savior of the world. He gets us access to heaven. He keeps us out of hell. He gives us purpose for life. Quick question. Is this hard to tell somebody about Jesus? We're going to talk about that in, in a moment's time. Get back to that. So that's telling people about Jesus, His way, His life, His words, His mission. Very simple. Let's use another one. Witnessing. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, the Greek word here for witness is actually martyr, which refers to martyr. You will die for my name. But here's a nice explanation of the word. Acts 22:15. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. Let's go to back to the first one. <laughs> to make disciples is to teach people about Jesus. Secondly, witnessing is to share what you have experienced with Jesus. Is that difficult? Is it difficult to tell somebody, hey, my life was a mess. I was broken. I had no purpose to life. I didn't know what I was doing. I was addicted to the bottle. I was injecting drugs. And then I met Jesus and my life changed. Is it difficult for us to say that? Yes. And if you've never been lost, maybe. Who's never been lost? Everybody's been lost, ladies and gentlemen. Unless you don't know that you were lost. And that means that Jesus never meant anything to you. Let's look at a third one. Maybe preaching. Jesus says in Mark chapter 16, He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. The Greek word used there is keruso, which means to herald, one that goes before or announces 
the coming of another. What do we preach? Jesus is coming back. Make friends with Him now, or eternal darkness is waiting for you. In other words, warn people of the judgment. So now we have three things so far. Teach people about Jesus. Share what you've experienced with Jesus. Number three, warn people that there's going to be a judgment day, that we'll be held accountable for what we do. And here's a fourth type, sowing seed. Sowing seed. Matthew 13, 24 Jesus told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And we can go read on about that parable if you want to. The symbolism of a seed refers to the word of God. The word of God is truth. Sowing seed is when you share the truth with someone. Do you think the world needs truth? I think the world needs truth. So... Do you get that? Four different ways. People ask me, well, what do you mean by evangelism? Well, here's four different ways that you can do it. You can tell somebody what's true from God's Word. You can share with somebody your experience with Jesus. Um, you can warn people that Jesus is coming back and that we'll be held accountable for what we do with our lives. These are fairly simple things. We can teach people about Jesus. Why is it that we struggle with it? Why is it that it doesn't resonate with us? Here is why I think evangelism is such a difficult task for many Christians. Because you can't do it. And it comes back to what the mulcher said. You can't do it if you don't know about Jesus. You can't do it. Oh, Michiel, you want me to go tell people about Jesus? Well, I don't know enough about Jesus. But you're following Him. You've given your life to Him. But you don't know enough about Him to tell somebody else about it. There's a problem. This is why this is a huge issue, because this is a spiritual problem in Christianity. You're a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, you don't know how to tell anybody else anything about Jesus, there's something wrong. Or, if you have never experienced Jesus, now that's an even bigger problem, Brother DeMille. If you've never experienced Christ, of course you can't tell somebody else about Christ, because you don't know what it's about. Or, if you don't really believe that Jesus is coming back. If we really believe Jesus is coming back, why would we keep quiet? Why would we have family members that are lost in sin and broken and we won't talk to them about it? Well, maybe we don't believe Jesus is coming back. Maybe there won't be a judgment. So we've got to do deep heart seeking now. And we've got to ask ourselves deeply, do I actually believe this stuff? Or am I just a churchgoer? Am I just playing? Am I just playing? I'm just... Going to church every Sunday. I don't really believe Jesus is coming back. We have dinners, suppers, celebrations and stuff with people that are lost. We'll never talk to them about Jesus. Or if you don't agree that the Word of God is true. That's why we don't just speak truth to each other. It was hard for me last week, preaching to these bunch of teenagers, teaching them about the words of Christ, teaching them to follow Christ, getting to Matthew chapter 19, having to tell them that marriage is between a man and a woman. I couldn't believe it was so hard for me to tell them that because everybody tells them, no, but marriage can be between a man and a man and a woman and a woman, even though it's naturally a problem. It's becoming increasingly harder to just speak the truth in this world. And so Christians are keeping silent. Oh, no, but I, I, I don't want to tell people what Jesus says. Well, that's a problem. Then you don't believe what Jesus says is true. And then you've got to do some deep seeking. This is fundamental 
struggles in the Christian movement. And this goes to the heart of the problem. So I'm not standing, I'm not standing on these steps here this morning saying, hey guys, uh, we need to just evangelize because Jesus said so. I'm, I'm going to the root issue in, in our hearts if we don't. Some things to think about. Ladies and gentlemen, discipleship, making disciples, evangelizing. I know this is foreign for many of us. I've got, I've got an idea as to why it is foreign. But I want to tell you today, that idea that pushes you away from this, it's not from God. Satan doesn't want the message to spread. Satan doesn't want us to penetrate this dark world. And so he's convinced us through a comfortable Christianity that we don't have to worry about this. It's nonsense. And I'm sorry if that makes us feel uncomfortable, but doing this is very doable. It's very doable. This for me is the most incredible photo. Now, I probably wouldn't do that, wear a hat like that when I baptize somebody. But that young man there, his name is Rampai. What a name. You thought Machil is bad. This, this kid is a, he's of the royal family of the kingdom of Lesotho. Lesotho is a landlocked country in South Africa. They call it the mountain kingdom. There's act, it's actually been rep- interesting country. It's actually been reported that they, there's still some cannibals in the mountains of that kingdom. This kid is part of the royal family. His dad married a Canadian woman. He was the product. And the dad had children with, with other women as well in Lesotho. And because of the royal inheritance, he was persecuted and kicked out because his mother wasn't a pure Basotho from, from Lesotho. And he's, I met him when he was 17 years old. In a, at a filling station, and he was a very interesting individual. We, we took him to our youth camp. He came to the youth camp, and he met Christ. And his life changed radically. I saw it with my own eyes. And I saw one morning he woke up, and he said he wants to commit his life to Christ. He wants to get baptized. And he only had these, like, church shoes and stuff. And we just took him like that, and we dropped him in the lake, and we baptized him into Christ. Time went on. He eventually, he arrived in America, in San Francisco, about three or four months before we did. When we, when we came to visit last year in March, we stopped over in San Francisco and we went to go visit him. And he told us how hard it was in San Francisco that he's working as a chef in a kitchen and how the people were persecuting him and he couldn't even mention the name of Christ. He couldn't even talk about God. And he said it was extremely hard because his supervisor was gay. And kept on making advances towards him. And this was foreign for him. He's, he's, an, he's an alien in a foreign world, in a foreign place. He can't talk about his faith. He finds it hard. You know what he started doing? He just started loving people around him. That's it. He didn't bring a, a big board to work showing everybody, hey guys, submit to Jesus so you're going to burn. He didn't do that. He loved people. And he never denied his faith. But he never put it in anybody's face. He phoned me about three weeks ago. And he said that this girl is, is quite a big influencer on Instagram and that she's one of these gym girls and whatever. And he said to me, hey, after one year of just loving people, God has allowed me, this girl has asked me to baptize her into Christ. He sent me the photo a week ago. This guy, ladies and gentlemen, is not a preacher. This guy is not a, a biblical machine. He was just working in a kitchen as a chef. Being a servant of Jesus, loving the people around him, and boom, 
Yes, he phoned me and he said, hey, do you have any advice on some scriptures I can share with her? Yeah, of course. Here's some scripture. He shared with her just his story. He taught her what he knew about Jesus. You can do it. I can do it. And we can change the world. And he didn't have to take her to a church to do this. He taught her in her house. He took her down to the river and he baptized her. You can do that. I can do that. There are people in your life that's looking for Christ that are lost. This could be you. I feel so honored. I baptized him. He's baptizing somebody else. One of my friends that's coming next week, Sunday, two weeks ago, he baptized a, a young man. He met him at a shooting range. There were, he's a policeman. And this guy said to him, I don't believe God exists. Said to him, I don't believe God exists. And he says, here's why. Because he studies, um, he studies uh, DNA found at, blood, at, at, at crime scenes. And he said, for some technical reason, something related to that there weren't a male and a female in, in the beginning that started the human race. And he came and asked me about it, my friend now. So I said to him, hey, here's some research. Recently they discovered this. Through DNA they've proven that the human race had a male and a female in the beginning. That sounds very much, and that's through DNA evidence. That sounds very much like Adam and Eve, doesn't it? And he sent it forward to him. And he started knocking on his door and started visiting with him. Just being friends. Going to shoot. Just being friends. Two weeks ago, he baptized him. In actual fact, no, last week, Saturday, he baptized him. And you can ask him this story. He's going to be here next week, Sunday. Why do we, why do we, I'm, I'm, you see, this is the world where I come from. And I'm trying to understand why this is so strange here. Why we feel so inadequate that we can do the same thing. You don't require a degree. You don't require something fantastic. You just require loving Jesus and letting it shine out of your heart. That's all you need. And telling people about Him when the door opens. It's actually very simple. Jesus called us to be salt and light. This isn't my doctrine. We were at the youth camp and I, I said to the kids, hey, marriage is between a, a male and a female. So one of the girls was um, <coughs> light girls. Did you say that? And she went to the camp and she told the other girls, hey, um, you know, I don't agree with what he said. Well, I don't, I, I don't care if she didn't agree with what I said. She was disagreeing with what Jesus said. And so even this morning, it might be difficult for you to accept what I'm saying. Well, then go test whether this is what Jesus says or not. He calls us salt and light. What does salt do? Salt has to be thrown outside of the packet. It preserves. It creates thirst. You can't, you can't force people to obey the gospel, but you can make them thirst for it. When you, you can't make a horse drink water, but you can put, slap a hand of salt on his tongue, and he's going to drink it. My little boy came in here this morning with popcorn. I'm like, for crying in a bucket, dude, why do you walk around popcorn in the church? Two minutes with popcorn in his hand. Guess what he asks me? Can I have some water? Of course, that's what salt does. Jesus says we salt. If our lives don't make people thirst for God, there's something wrong. If you're friends with people for 40 years and they never want to know your God, there's something wrong in your spiritual life. Jesus talks about that. He says salt loses its salt content, and then it's useless. You throw it out it's for men to be trampled upon. It's worth nothing. We're worth nothing to God if we are not salt, because we're making no impact in the world. He says that we are light. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Why is it that so many Christians are hidden? There's something wrong. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That for me is interesting. 
If Jesus was here and I was following him, where would he take me? Let's be honest. Where would he take me? He would take me to the lost. That's why he came. So if I say I'm following him, but I don't care about the lost, I'm not following him. I'm following somebody else or something else. This for me is a very hard text. John 15 verse 8. It's talking about Jesus being the vine and we are the branches. He says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, proving to be my disciple. You want to prove you're a disciple of Christ? Make disciples. The fruit proves if you're following Him or not. And be honest with you, that's what I'm struggling with, personally. I meet people that want to debate all kinds of theological things. They want to have all kinds of arguments about stuff. And you know, the first and most important question for me is, before I respect the Christian is ask the question, do you make disciples? Show me the names of the people that you're busy teaching. Show me the names of the people that you're praying for at night. Who are they? Because that's what matters. That proves to me you're a follower of Christ. I don't care how much you know the Bible. I don't care how much history you know. I don't care if you've preached in 10,000 churches. What I care about is this. Do you have fruit? It's hard. It's hard for us to eat this because Satan has managed to lie to us about these things. So what now? What now? Okay. There's so much to say, but I'm going to leave you with some thoughts. Here's a text. Matthew 9.35. This is what we need to start doing. First of all, we need to pray. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in, the syn- in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Verse 36 is very interesting for me. I'll read it again. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion. His, his intestines were burning and yearning. Because why? Because he looked at the sheep and he said, well, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. His bells are churning. He feels sympathy and compassion. Why? Because they look like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus said they looked faint, almost paralyzed, tired and cast down and scattered. To understand this spiritual condition, it's a good idea to just tap quickly into the shepherding of sheep. So I did some research just quickly about what, what, why should sheep be shepherded. Because without a shepherd, sheep will follow sheep off a cliff. Think about the people in our town. Think about some of the people in America. They don't have a shepherd. They don't have anybody directing them and guiding them. Because they don't have Jesus. So they, who, who are they following? They're just following other sheep. They're following the latest guy on Instagram, the greatest influencer, or the movie makers. Or they're following Trump. Or they're following Biden. They're following men. And what do sheep do? A sheep is a dumb animal, ladies and gentlemen. You guys know that, right? They just follow the next sheep. Okay. That sheep's going to fall off the cliff. You're going to fall off the cliff. But if you've got a shepherd, the shepherd sees the cliff and says, whoa, come back. What else? Without a shepherd, sheep will struggle to find water and pasture. And when sheep don't find water and pasture... What happens? Well, the, the pregnant ladies, they really st- struggle. And the ewes that have got little ones, they really struggle because they can't produce enough milk. And what happens to the young? The young dies. One of the greatest problems in our country is what happens to children. Go think about it. 
Without a shepherd, sheep are defenseless against predators. We've spoken about this before. A sheep doesn't have claws, vicious claws, right? And it, it doesn't have big teeth. Oh, it doesn't growl. It's pretty much useless. When a wolf attacks it, it says, okay, bye. Dead. Can't do anything. Can't even run. Absolutely defenseless. Without a shepherd, sheep develop compromised bodies. It rains. They, they, so they, they, they don't get sheared. And they become matted. And parasites start to develop under the, under, in, this, in this mat. And it enters their bodies. And they become sick from the inside and they die. Their hooves aren't sorted out properly, so they struggle to move about. Without a shepherd. Jesus is looking at the crowds of people like this. And he says, oh my goodness. These people are sheep without shepherd. And I'm yearning within my gut, and I'm finding it very hard. I care about them, so what do we do about it? Because I don't know about you, but that's what I see in our society. That's what I see in our little town. I see sheep without shepherd. What does Jesus say we do about it? He says, pray. Pray for what? For the Lord to send out workers into His vineyard. And that's essentially why I'm talking about this this morning. Because I'm asking you to be a servant. To go out into the vineyard. To go produce a harvest. Or reap the harvest. Because there's sheep in this town that's without a shepherd. And if we're not going to do anything about it, then what then? And you know what was so shocking for me with being at this youth camp last week? These teenagers, they all claim to be going to church. But they are sheep without a shepherd. And that tells me that the churches aren't really doing a good job either. We can't expect people to just to come into church and that's going to fix everything. Drag them to church. You know what? We can teach them where they are at in the world. Jesus goes everywhere. Jesus isn't just stuck in a church. He goes in your car. He lives in your neighborhood. And he lives in your house. And you can take him into somebody else's house. Many people don't want to come to church. That's fine. Take Jesus to them where they are. Because they need him. Because they are sheep without a shepherd. And so let me ask you this. Can we see it? Do we care? I mean, if, as I'm talking about this, and there's sheep around us that are really, in, really struggling... There's a little boy that, that comes to this church, used to come to this church. He's, he's his mother. His mother dropped, decided she's going to have a new boyfriend now, and there's no space for her son in her life. She took this kid and dropped him off by the dad who's a truck driver. They don't have a house to live in. This kid's supposed to be going to school. That's the stuff going on in our neighborhood. Does this bother us? Does, does that mother perhaps need Jesus? Do we need to perhaps pray for her and ask for ways that we can get into her life? Because that's going to destroy her child's life and her life. It's everywhere. Do we see it? So on Wednesday, I came from a meeting, and I passed the robots, uh, the traffic lights here in town, and a guy that I know very well, he was here last Sunday night at church. He's an uh, evangelist here in town. And another older guy, who's a, very, a retired cop of, of Sweet Home, they were standing at the traffic light with boards like that. And I was like, oh, dude. That's a bit awkward. Who agrees? It's a, bit, it's a bit weird. I won't do that. And I'm thinking, dude, why don't you... It's probably the least effective way. I mean, people are probably not going to stop there in their car and say, I really want to talk to you about what's on your signboard. <laughs> that one that says Jesus died for hell-deserving sinners. <laughs> yes, maybe the, 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 the one on the right really yeah, cut off. Let's take that one off. But... So, so, so I am, I'm driving past and I think to myself, geez, dude, couldn't you have done something else? But then I thought about it as I'm preparing this lesson. You know what? At least they believe what Jesus said. And at least 
they care about the people who live in this town. At least they really see what's going on. Whereas the rest of the Christians, we just sit at home and watch TV. So I honor them. I have a... I need to tell you about somebody in this church. Check this bad boy. So we have a person in this church. um, We've got a new nickname for her. She's the SS lady. You know what the SS were? The SS, agents. You remember who they were? They were the, the Nazi guys, right? So we have one of those in this church. We call her the secretary slayer, or the snake slayer. It's Angela. She's the secretary. When we were down by the um, river the other day, to, uh, when we had fellowship there, Angela was mowing the grass, and there was a, there was a, there's a, there's a bicycle, an old bicycle by a rock, and she picked up the bicycle, mowed the grass, put the bicycle back, like maybe an half an hour or hour later, I don't know who found it. it was Nathan, actually. You, you found it. They, she'd put the, the bicycle on a snake, like a big snake like this. She didn't even see it. This poor guy's just having a chill day. Boom, killed by a bicycle. Snake slayer. So, so what? <laughs> the secretarial snake slayer. Be careful of that woman. She kills snakes without knowing it. and She just walks away. This, the poor snake's mouth is open. It still tries to bite the bike, but it's dead, you know. So she gave me this plant. So I'm treading very carefully, very carefully. What do you see about this thing? It's busy dying. She gave it to me as a gift. I'm like, you better water that plant. I'm like, oh, I'm so I'm stressing out every day. I get it, and it just keeps on dying and dying. I put water, and I was like, oh, wake up. It doesn't want to wake up. She told me yesterday, I think we need to make a plan with that plant, maybe put it somewhere else. Now, there's a story in Jonah, right at the end of the book of Jonah. God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to those people, right? Because they are lost, and they need to repent. And Jonah is upset, because he walks into the city, and he preaches eight words, I think it was. And God forgives the city, because the whole city repents. Jonah says that even the cows in the field repent. And he's like, and Jonah's upset. So he goes and sits on the mountain. He looks at the sea and he waits for God to destroy it because he's upset that God is gracious and he forgives these people. Because the Ninevites were the worst type of people. The Assyrians were conquering the world, killing people. So he's upset. You know what God does? God is funny. So, so the, the sun is baking down on his head. So God lets a plant grow. To cover his head. Something like this, just more beautiful. It covers his head. And jo- Jonah's like happy. Oh, this is incredible. Oh, it's in the shade. and Oh, wonderful. Especially like it's hot now, right? But the next day, God sends a worm <laughs> to eat the plant. And the plant starts dying. And the wind starts rising. And the sun starts scorching his head, eventually Jonah says, I'm, I want to die. Let me just rather die. It's so uncomfortable here, and I'm upset with God about these people. And then God brings him the message. He says, you are upset about a plant dying, but you don't care. I think he says that there's 120,000 innocent people in the city that will 
be destroyed if I destroy this place. What's wrong with you, Jonah? And so what I'd like to challenge you is this. You go buy yourself a plant and you put it in your house and you don't give it water and you watch it die. That's exactly the same thing that happens when we keep quiet about Christ. We live in a town, we don't want to talk about Him. It's exactly the same thing. People are dying all around us. And we don't care. We don't care. A vivid reminder. Thank you, Angela, for this reminder. It will keep me focused. Almost done. And then I watched this uh, documentary about this great guy, Arnold. Have you guys watched it? Anybody watched it? Okay. We all know him, right? Great achiever. Mr. Olympia. Golden Globe actor. Governor of California. What do you think his mission was in life? He's a celebrity, all right. And he feels that he has had a brilliant life. Muscles. That was his goal. Movies and politics. But if you go look at it carefully, why do you think he did that? It's all self-seeking. It was all about what he could achieve for himself. He has entertained people. He's done a good job at that. He has inspired people to get muscles. Sorry to say this, that worms will eat. Because we all die and maggots take over. He led a state that people are fleeing from now, apparently. And, this is going to sound harsh. At this moment, it seems like he's going to hell. And he has not helped anybody get into heaven. What has he achieved? What does it help you to gain the whole world and then forfeit your soul? You might say, Michiel, you don't know about his eternal destiny. Well, I'm going I'm to share with you something that might just give you a glimpse into it. And I'm sorry about this statement. This is what he said. A reporter asked him, tell me, governor, what happens to us when we die? And Arnold said, nothing. You're six feet under, and anyone that tells you something else is an effing liar. Arnold Schwarzenegger had amazing muscles. The worms will eat those muscles. He was the governor of a state that is going into ruins. He's made movies that will be gone in 100 years from now, 200 years from now. And he's eternally lost because he says Jesus is a liar. What has he achieved? Absolutely nothing. Do we follow people like that with the same warped worldview that think that stuff like muscles and movies is really meaningful in this life? Are we so engrossed in the temporary nature of life that we have lost sight of what really matters? What really matters? What death does is it makes you realize what really matters. At the end of it all, I went into ministry, ladies and gentlemen, to make an eternal impact. Eternal impact. Ask yourself the question, what you are doing right now, how long will it last? Is this part of your thinking? I'm going to close off with some practical advice. I know I've been hard this morning. I'm hard on myself too. Jesus sends his disciples into the world and he says to them this, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as wise as snakes and as innocent as doves. That's a strange thing to say by Jesus, right? <laughs> because when 
Satan chose to come forth in an animal. What did he come forth as? A snake. And Jesus says, we have to be like snakes. So just quickly, this is about evangelism. He sends them out. As you go, be like a snake. But be innocent like a dove. Some translation says crafty as a snake. I looked at what a guy like Miles Monroe says about this, and this is some of the stuff that he came up with. The qualities of a serpent is the ability to camouflage. In other words, you don't go walk into people's homes with a Bible that's 20 feet tall, with a suit and a white tie around your neck, all religious. You just are like people. We are people we are not much different than people in the world except we're trying to live better lives and we believe Jesus Christ saves us. Why don't we just act like that? We don't have to use certain words and say hallelujah every second word or go to people's home and say, okay, let's sing Kumbaya now. Just be a normal human being, fit in to the world and try to connect with the world. You don't have to be a sinner like the world in order to connect with the world. Snake's got an incredible ability to camouflage himself. Number two, the ability to enter any situation. A snake can get into holes that um, nothing else can get into. They have that ability to get into situations that most, um, most other animals cannot get into. And then thirdly, a snake has no fear of the size of the prey. If you've ever seen a snake eat, it can eat a, a thing much larger than itself. Some pythons eat pigs and and deers, and what they do is the jaw unlocks. And Miles Monroe brings this out. He says, sometimes we think the only people that we can teach about Jesus are people on the street, people that we think are lower than us. And he's like, no, that's not the case. There's no person in this world, your boss, your boss needs Jesus too, and you can eat him. In other words, teach him about Jesus. There's nobody that's too important for you to talk to them about Christ. Of course you can. A snake doesn't sit back and say, well, this is too big of a prey. I like that. And then lastly, snakes study their prey. Spend a lot of time with them. They say that some snakes would study their prey for about five hours to see when they jump, how they move, so that when they do move in, they know exactly how to strike and how to take hold of their prey. This is the teaching of Jesus. He says, we've got to be like snakes. So I want to challenge you, as you go live your weeks and days, just be a normal human being. You don't have to be a church person. One of the things that Miles Monroe says is, he says, Christians come into church, and they are nice church people. When they go out into the world, they don't know how to act. They don't know how to be just a normal human. And the world finds that weird. They don't know how to connect with that. Just be a normal person who loves Jesus. You can enter any situation with the power of Christ. You don't, have to, you don't have to think, well, I can only talk to certain people about Jesus. No. And study people. Spend time with them. Learn. So at the right time, you can share the message with them.